What is up, folks? My guest today is Andrew Friedman, an acclaimed author, food writer, and host of the podcast Andrew Talks to Chefs. I met Andrew through his podcast, reading his writings over the years, and just having a successful career, being super connected with all of these big, massive names in the restaurant chef kind of e- ecosystem. And we connected a few months ago on all things media and production and having a podcast where we talk to other hospitality pros. For more than 10 years, Andrew has collaborated with many of the nation's biggest and most revered chefs on cookbooks and other writing projects. His writing career began in 1997 when Alfred Portale asked him to collaborate on the Gotham Bar and Grill cookbook. He has since worked as a cookbook collaborator on more than 20 projects, including Knives at Dawn, cataloging the book Who's Door, as well as Chefs, Drugs, and Rock and Roll, which he gets very vulnerable about in this conversation. I wasn't expecting that, as well as helping a number of the nation's best chefs share their culinary viewpoints with readers. He does have a new book coming out soon, which unfortunately he had to keep pretty close to the chest in this conversation. But if you folks enjoyed this one, I would love to have Andrew back on the show because we didn't nearly cover my massive list of questions that I had for him in the time that we had together. If at any point you'd like to pause and check out Andrew online or any of the specific linkable things we discussed, please do check out the show notes, which are always available in the description of this podcast. But before we talk to Andrew, I want to give a quick business shout out as well as a sentimental shout out to JB Prince. As many of you folks probably remember, we talked to Tim Musig, the CEO of the Chef Focused Gear Company, a few episodes back. And since then, Tim has made the showroom available to the Repertoire podcast to shoot in. And so to say the obvious, if you're in the market for my favorite tweezers, Silicone molds, knives, perforated spoons, mat furs, bench scrapers, piping tips, carbon steel pans, you name it, JB Prince has it. And JB Prince also supports this show, and I would love for you to support them. Links are in the description of this podcast to shop JB Prince. And with that business bit out of the way, this is probably the first time I'm going to talk sentimentally about this partnership because it was pretty surreal as a first episode to record in the showroom. Because if you would have told Justin in culinary school that he would be interviewing a best-selling author in the showroom that I used to get intimidated walking into, I would call you a nutcase. And I'm just so incredibly grateful to get to do what I do with this show and for you folks. And I really hope that there are some insights in this episode that bring you some value. Because at the end of the day, it's not about the cool things that I get to do. It's the cool things I get to help you folks accomplish. And so keep sending me your success stories, your DMs, all of the things that you folks are up to out there in the world accomplishing. Please share this episode with a friend. Screenshot this share it on Instagram, tag me, tag Andrew, tag JB Prince, and I'm just really excited to share this conversation with you. Please enjoy. Do you keep this like encyclopedic knowledge of chef stuff like how do you Why? keep track of everything you mean the I'm fact so that curious. i knew matt had yeah been yeah the chef all there? of this stuff like there's well, few just, people i'm just older than you <laughs> i've just been around no i don't i mean i don't keep like 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 insane notes or you know i talked to someone like ruth reichel mm-hmm. i mean she has press releases from like 1979 i'm not even kidding you know like filed like she's unbelievable like that i've never been like a real journal like you know, beat journalist. I don't have a lot of that stuff. No, I just, I've just been, you know, I've just lived a lot of it, I guess. I get asked that, you know, I remember interviewing Bobby Flay for Chef's Drugs and Rock and Roll and he mentioned a place called Trixie's that was in the Times Square area, like in the 80s. 
And I was like, oh, yeah, sweet potato fries with maple syrup. <laughs> and he was like, how do you know that? Yeah. I'm like, I used to go there? Like, I wasn't even, I was in the film business at that time. But, like, my girlfriend at the time liked that place. I don't know. I just, I have a good memory. I mean, in general. Yeah. And that, that, that has to help you as a, as a, as a writer, like, just being able to pull things, like, connecting dots, right? Connecting dots is uh, half the game. I think that helps, yes. Uh-huh. I think that helps a lot. I wish I trusted it more, because I tend to, like, over-document when I'm observing stuff, and sometimes I feel like maybe I lose the moment, and I'm not going to ever need to write in the detail that I'm, you know, I mean, I'm clinically OCD. Okay. Like, clinically. Yeah. Like, I take Zoloft, uh-huh. and... And that's always a struggle for me is like how much is like, cause I'll see writers, you know, other writers observing, like I wrote a book about the book whose door years ago mm-hmm. and other journalists came and went as I was following the team and like nobody was taking, but you know, I read their articles, the articles were great, you know? And I was sitting there scribbling like every knife, you know, how much of that are you going to write? It's hard, but I always feel like when I get the minute I let myself get relaxed, I'm going to miss something really important you know does that do you find that it helps you in the editing process though how do you mean the the you know some people talk about the story comes together sometimes in the edit or or it, it feels done when there's nothing left to edit out do you feel that uh, at all? I mean I have a version of that line which is that if I can stand to write it people will be able to read it so like if I'm like you know within a story I'm giving a little pocket bio of one of the characters like my own personal ability to keep writing it to me is a pretty good measure of how readable it'll be. Like if I start to feel like I'm in quicksand and I'm like, I can't, I don't care about this part of it. Like I feel like probably that's a good radar. I could be wrong. How do you get high standards? How do I get high standards? Yeah. Cause that's what it is at the end of the day. It's I like, guess. You are have... we recording now by the yeah, way? Yeah, yeah. Or are we just, yeah, well, Oh, you I'm, are. I'm, 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 I started and I was going to give an intro, but okay. like, I'm going to just keep going. Okay. <laughs> that's okay. With uh, you. That's fine. <laughs> I mean, high, I don't high standards. I mean, this is a little deep and revealing considering we just met in person for the first time, but probably by being mortified by the last thing I wrote, you know, there's parts of my last book I can't read, you know, and that book, chef's drugs and rock and roll, like, with one big exception, it got great reviews and, you know, I still get notes about it and, and it still gets nice reviews on Amazon and, and there's chapters I love, but there's chapters that got the best of me and I probably let go of them sooner than I should have, or I just kind of couldn't take it anymore and I had to get the book in, but that feeling is horrible. And, you know, like this book that I'm finishing right now that I don't want to have that feeling. I want to, I want to want, I want to want to sit down and reread it, you know, you know, and I tell people that and they, they're like about the last thing and they're like, you're crazy. But I, I'm not, I don't think I'm crazy. There's some parts of it that are flabby and you know, I could have taken a scalpel to it a little more, or I could have done some more writing of my own instead of like having such long quotes and there were reasons at the time. I mean, I took forever to write that book. I had to get it in. I had so much material that it was very hard for me to edit it down. I had so much. I mean, because you interviewed almost two hundred chefs for that. A little book. more than well, a little more than two hundred people. Got it. I'm not saying chefs aren't people, yeah, but that, yeah, I get it. not all the people were chefs. I get it. Uh, but yeah, it was about two ten, and I had all but like three or four last minute interviews transcribed professionally. 
And I mean, I have tens of thousands of pages, tens of thousands. Now, at some point, I'm going to get permission from all those people and I'm going to take out all the stuff that was off the record and I'm going to leave it, I think, to somebody. Like, I think I'm going to leave those transcripts to like, I don't know, NYU Food Studies or the Culinary Institute of America or some place like that because I think that'll be an amazing treasure trove for somebody. But not till I'm dead because <laughs> now it's mine. It's all mine. So many places. Nobody to... else can partake right now. Although I have to say, having said that, it's a little bit in jest because I, do you know who Joyce Goldstein is on the West Coast? She, uh -uh. Was, she had a restaurant years ago called Square One, which was an important restaurant in San Francisco. She is one of the many people who came out of Chez Panisse. She has written, I think, 20-something cookbooks and food books. And she's also a wonderful historian. She wrote a book called Inside the California Food Revolution that came out like five or six years ago. And when I was writing my book, when I had sold the proposal, Judy Rogers, who was, had been the, the, the real defining chef at Suzuni Cafe, was dying. She had had cancer and, and I didn't really know her. I'd met her once. I didn't know her well at all. She might not have even known who I was. And I spoke to a couple of good friends of hers and they said, don't, don't even make the ask. And so I didn't. Now, Joyce had written her historical book. And when I interviewed Joyce, who I didn't know before this, she gave me to quote from freely the transcript of her interview with Judy Rogers for her book. Wow which is a distinctly California thing to do, sure. I say as, in, as a New Yorker. So I try to remember that. You know, if somebody came to me and, I mean, we lost Mark Peel a couple of, uh, not even maybe a year ago. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mark's one of the guys on the cover of the book. He was in a lot of these restaurants. You know, I have an amazing hour-long interview with Mark. If somebody was going over the same ground and they asked me and I trust and I thought they were doing something on the up and up, you know, I'd probably do that for, I'd probably pay it forward, you know, but generally speaking, no, <laughs> like, you know, but I do want to, I do want to, you know, my agreement with all the interviewees was I was only recording them for accuracy that, sure. you know, I wouldn't, you know, use the, play these things in a public way. Or mm -hmm. twist them out of context. Like that's, well, that's, yeah. I mean, that's happens too often. No, I, that, I'd, I'd like to think at this point I have a reputation for being an honest broker, but yeah, of course, but no, it is my plan to a stay healthy and live a while and B to clean up the out, you know, the off the record stuff and get people's permission and talk to some institution. Yeah. And leave, you know, these, I don't know what it is. It's probably like 30 to 40,000 pages of interviews mm -hmm. with everybody. That's I mean, it's everybody. Incredible. You know, it's Alice Waters and Wolfgang Puck and Jeremiah Tower and Lydia Shire and Sarah Moulton and Alfred Portali and Jonathan Waxman. And it's everybody. And, and people who were sous chefs who are not household names and, you know, people who were in the business then and got out. And yeah. Anyway. Yes. So many threads to, to pull on there. The, the one that I think is so fascinating to hear you talk about that book as a scarlet letter what, what, what you're you're you don't look back at it fondly i think chefs have this funny thing that will sometimes happen as they go from their first or second or sometimes even third concept 
before they hit their their thing and they have this it shows in all of the the documentaries that they make on chef sometimes not all of them but it is a distinct part of the story to show the article with the one star review or the two star review and that chef looks back at that time at that restaurant the menu that they were serving the cuisine that they were kind of trying to construct and they just couldn't quite get it right and they're like that's embarrassing like i, I hate that but then you know i think wiley has a story like that and then wd50 comes after right, right? so do, do you do you feel do you get excited about that like i like hearing about those stories of the the before the success piece and it's not like you aren't successful but like to have a book come after that i just think people see failures as negative and they aren't always yeah i mean and also i don't i mean i don't look i don't however you phrase it i don't mm. i don't i don't dislike my last book or, okay. i mean my last okay. book in a lot of ways changed my career mm-hmm. i can't talk about it publicly but you know it's 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 for the third time now under option mm-hmm. for possibly turning it into a, a docu-series uh, you know industry people know it yeah it's a lot easier for me to get interviews now I get more calls to be you know I was just in this documentary about Mario Batali I, I'm just there to give some history sure. you know but sure. all that kind of thing happens yeah. you know which is great but I if I'm understanding your question am I excited to have another at bat oh yeah I mean I the only reason the book I'm t- about to turn in I mean it hasn't been the you know the the tardiness debacle that Chef Struggs was that took I mean I was supposed to take two years I took five years this book I was supposed to turn in in the spring and I wanted a little more time there's some some supply chain issues have hit publishing so they were going to move the pub date a little bit anyway so it worked out and now I really do need to get it in but one reason I haven't delivered it is I'm so happy I'm knocking on wood I'm so happy with what I've written so far, you know, and I sit down sometimes and instead of picking up wherever I stopped, you know, I pick up on page one and I just read from page one. And, you know, the few people like my agent, my wife, you know, one or two friends who I've shown pages to, you know, they see it. And and I, it is, it's maybe a little weird to talk about this openly or publicly, but, you know, I have read about artists that I admire who, you know, were on the verge of doing something. And I use that term very broadly. And they, I, they had this feeling like they, they were, like they were putting everything into it. And this was the thing, you know, and, you know, years ago, Chris Rock did a special on HBO. I don't know why it's not available. I wanted to watch it the other night and you can't watch it. Interesting. His first big one. Sure. Uh, Bring the pain. Got it. The one that really took him to the level that he stayed at basically since. It had some very famous bits in it, some of which he probably couldn't do right now. Mm-hmm. You may know the one I mean, you may not, but mm-hmm. it was very- I can't bring it to mind. Oh, well, there's a bit in there that he does. Let's just say he identified a, a, a demarcation line within the black community. Got it. That involves a word mm-hmm. we don't use. Sure, sure. And it was a major, I remember him talking about this bit on the Oprah Winfrey show. Wow. And, but anyway, Friends of his, I saw something, read something about the making of that thing, and friends of his talked about him getting ready for that performance. Though I remember somebody saying he trained for it the way a prize fighter trains for a title fight, and and it, 
for a very different example, and I'm I'm not comparing myself to either of these gentlemen, but especially not to the second one. <laughs> you know, apparently, what's the album? The Bob Dylan album that has Tangled Up in Blue on it. Is it Highway 61? I can't remember offhand. Anyway, whatever album it was, people talked about, you know, him showing up in New York, you know, with these songs written and being just like unbelievably excited and knowing he had gotten like to another level. And again, I don't know if, does it seem weird? Mm. But this is, this is what I feel like right now. I like it. I feel I like it. I'm walking around with this secret mm -hmm. and it's this book and I'm really excited about it. And I, I, I'm most excited by, if I'm right, I, how I think it's gonna be received by the culinary community, specifically restaurant people. It's, it's, it's I think, a, a way of looking at a restaurant that's not been done, at least not exactly the way I've done it. it it's been, it, it, there's a lot of little nooks and crannies where I can just drop in just observed things that I didn't even know I was gonna put in the book when I started writing it. I got very lucky with the cast of characters and the subject. And, you know, I think all writers have this, have had moments where Spalding Gray did a, a, one of his, you know, monologue shows years ago called Monster in a Box. Mm -hmm. And it was about like, you know, the, the manuscript was the monster in the box. It's like this like thing. This feeling. Well, it's this thing that you're afraid of. You don't mm -hmm. like, in, you know, you wake up in the morning and there are days where you're like, I can't. You know, I don't know what to write right now. I, I don't feel that way with this book. I've not experienced writer's block. I've not experienced confusion about how to structure it. I mean, I've had decisions to make, and I've, I've certainly unmade and made them, you know, remade them in a different way. But like shift drugs and rock and roll, like just figuring out what am I going to whittle all this history down to, you know? Mm -hmm. That was hard. That took a long, that took months, maybe years if you added it all up. You know, and stuff that I wrote that never got used and, you know, restaurants I wrote entire histories of that aren't in the book. And, you know, like there's none of that with this. This is all very honestly, I woke up with this idea a couple of years back and it's basically the idea I woke up with. Basically, it hasn't changed much. That feels so creatively sound when that happens. I. I feel very, I don't know, I feel very lucky right now. I feel lucky that I get to do it. I feel lucky that, I mean, everyone had their version of this during COVID. You know, if you had asked me in, in October of 20, are you going to be a writer when this thing is over? I honestly, I didn't know. I had no work. I did not have a book under contract. I couldn't sell a project at the time. I tried. I still think the proposals I tried to sell during that time were really good, but couldn't sell it. I think everybody was too gun-shy about trying to predict what would work two years from then. And then in November of that month, within about a week, I sold this idea. It was very Hollywood. I sold this idea on a phone call to my editor, who I had never met in person. That's a long story, but my, my agent kind of set me up on a phone blind date with this editor. And... I had no intention of pitching the book, but I thought he might respond to it, and he did. And, and I mean, I had to write a little proposal. And within that same week, I, was, I got a text from Daniel Balud asking me if I wanted to work with him on a memoir project. And then, you know, my life got back on track professionally, you know? The reason I bring up that question is because chefs, I, f I find, can sometimes get in this headspace of like, well, oh my God, I don't want that feeling, that that that. I screwed up the, the, the menu or the critic came in and didn't have a good experience or the article comes out. Like that's the thing that they show on the, all the TV shows because yeah. it's like such a, 
pit in your stomach feeling. But what I'm wanting to highlight for the, for the listener is this idea of coming off of this project that you look back on and you don't see it as, a, a, you, you have parts of it that you're not proud of, but you have this successful podcast that came out of it. You have this book that you're like glowing talking about. Like you mm-hmm. can just hear it in your voice when you're describing this project. Yeah, I'm really excited about it. <laughs> like it, that's on the other side of some of this sometimes. And so, you know, hoping, hoping it's, it's a, it's at least a, a cautionary tale is the wrong word, but to just this, it's, it, there, there's another side to this, you know, potential downside. You know, I was talking to my, I do think it correlates to, I mean, to what, well, I think anything that's expressive, mm-hmm. but definitely what chefs do, you know, my, my agent and I were talking recently about this book and you know, I said something similar to what I just said to you. And he said, you know, it's writing is very funny because if you're doing it right, you're always going to be better on the next project, right? And, you know, when I was a kid, I used to hear interviews with like film directors I really admired. And, and a lot of times they'd say like, I can't watch my movies. I don't watch my own movies. And I was like, what are you talking? Like, you know, some of these movies were like best picture winners, like you know, iconic. like iconic. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean, everyone, you're, I, are we allowed to say the name Woody Allen? Like when I was a kid, Woody Allen was like a movie making, you know, deity. And, you know, like he, he would say like, I can't go back and watch Annie Hall. You know, that's one I remember. I'm mm-hmm. like, what is he talking about? But I understand it now, mm-hmm. you know, you know, writing, I find, I, I think it might've been Ruth Reichel who said this. I know she quoted it. I don't know if it's her line, but I once saw this line saying, I don't like writing, but I love having written. Mm. And that's kind of like me, you know, like I like, I love having a polished article, a great paragraph, an awesome sentence, you know, like the struggle to get there. I don't love it. I have friends who are much better than I am. You know, I'm not one of these natural stylists, you know, uh, People are already not remembering this name, but Josh Ozersky, who was a writer here in New York, who I was very friendly with. I mean, I assume his probably he had editors. Maybe not, but I assume somebody came in and like cleaned it up a little bit. But Josh would just spout these terms of phrase. I mean, he would do it at a bar at one in the morning. He was so extemporaneously brilliant. And I'm not that guy. I'm not that guy. It's like a desire to be that guy, you know? And like, Mm -hmm. I've gotten good enough at the craft, but I would never say that I have approached, you know, like the art of great writing. I don't, I don't think I am that person. I think it's why I do fact-based stuff. And it's, you know, you mentioned my, you know, my, my podcast somewhere in the last several years, you know, I started the show, my show, about four months, five months before the book came out, before Chef's Drugs came out. And somewhere in there, I think I realized that really everything I do is a vehicle for my interviews. The only thing I feel like I do really well is interview. Mm. That's the only thing I'm really confident about. When did, when did you have that realization? Was there a moment? I don't think I really knew it till I started doing my own show. And I, recording it kind of thing. Recording it, editing it, putting it out for consumption, the kind of notes I would get from people good friends calling me and saying, I mean, this is going to start to sound really self-congratulatory really (laughs) fast, but like, you know, good friends, people who'd known me forever going, I had no idea, you know, like that, like people who, you know, I'd, I'd put out 20 something books. No, they never said anything to me about my writing, you know, but 
they heard me do these interviews and they were like, oh my God, I had no idea. You know, before uh, Andrew Talks to Chefs, I did a thing with my friend Jimmy Bradley, who's a chef and he used to have, among other restaurants, the Red Cat in New York, a beloved restaurant. And we wanted to do sort of what we called Meet the Press for Chefs. And we did a show called The Front Burner and it went out live and then it would live in, it's still there. You can still look it up online. And even promoting books, I'd always loved doing radio. Like we have, you have video equipment here. You know, I'm, this is probably the wrong, like I hate worrying about my arms. No. I hate, you know, but like when you're on just strictly doing audio, sure. I love not worrying about is a hair out of place, mm-hmm. that I wear the right thing. You know, when I used to act in high school and college, I never knew what to do with my arms, yeah. like ever. Yeah. But just extemporaneously talking I love it I I do genuinely want to know about people I am very curious that way and when we were getting ready to do the front burner I started listening to a lot of podcasts I never really Mm. did before that and I was really drawn to Mark Maron's podcast WTF okay which is one of the biggest podcasts Mm. in the world Mm. and you know initially that show for people who don't know Mark Maron was a comic He's, he still is. He's an actor, and he, mostly, though, he's an interviewer now. But, you know, when he started that podcast, it was him interviewing other comics, and it was about the craft, and it was about the life, and it was... And even when we started doing The Front Burner, in the back of my mind, I was like, I want to be the Mark Maron of the chef world. Like, I'm not a chef. Like, he was a comic interviewing other comics, but I felt like I knew the world enough that I could interview chefs on equal footing, that I understood their life enough to ask questions about everything from cooking school to how the creative process, to the review process, to, to managing people, to how did you create your kind of professional curriculum of jobs early in your career. And I had that in my head. And the minute, you know, Jimmy decided he was going to move out of New York and, you know, he was going to maybe do some other stuff and we were going to stop doing the show. I mean, immediately I was like, I'm going to do this thing. And, you know, I'm into the 200s now of episodes. And yeah, but one, and as soon as, I mean, the first one I did was with Alex Stupak. And even that one, I mean, I couldn't, I was like, how are people even finding this? I'm so excited for his new restaurant. Yeah. I can't yeah. wait to Well, go. I think he's brilliant. <laughs> yeah. I think he's, he's absolutely brilliant. Mm-hmm. Um, but... You know, we started, it started strong, you know, and Alex was, it's a funny thing. I sent him a note about this sometime during COVID because I had re-listened to it. I originally had another guest booked for the first show and they had to cancel. Wow. And right like within 10 minutes of the cancellation, I got an email from his PR firm saying, hey, we saw you're starting a show. Do you want to? And I had met Alex once or twice. I'd always been a little intimidated by him. He, I, I. you he's know, very intimidating. Well, he's very, he's really smart. Mm-hmm. He's really quick. My, he's multidisciplinary. He's both, mul- yes. Kitchen. Yeah. And he also, I had this vibe from him and based on where he had worked, mm-hmm. you know, for people who don't know, he had worked at, you know, he was the opening pastry chef at Alinea and he had been the pastry chef at WD50. He comes out of some hardcore environments. And, you know, my impression was he probably doesn't suffer fools very well. He had done my old show once and the one Jimmy and I did, and he was super nice and he became the first guest. And all of this is a long way of me saying, because it was Alex, I, I, I mean, I prepped really extensively. I still do, but I don't come with like pages of notes. I don't come with physical notes anymore. That's like a thing of mine. But at the time... 
because it was Alex, I was, I mean, I prepped the way like James Lipton preps for inside the, I mean, I had so many notes and I had his book with me and, you know, the taco book. And I had like, I, I mean, and we had an amazing conversation. And to be honest, it built up my confidence. The fact that I could kind of go 15 rounds with him and not embarrass myself. And that just set a tone. I mean, you asked about how do you set a standard before that set a standard really fast, you know, and then I'm friendly with Amanda Cohen and I had her lined up to be the second guest already. And then I had Mike Anthony come on very early. And then, you know, it's funny because I've known her before she did television or anything, but Amanda Freitag, who's now very well known from Chopped and all these other things. I mean, I knew Amanda back when she was a sous chef in New York and I saw her at Missy Robbins's book party for Missy's first book. And, you know, Amanda said, oh, can I come on? I saw you have a show. Can I come on? I was like, yeah. So she was my fourth guest. And I always talk about that episode as being the one where I felt like the show found its voice because it was a really good mix of like New York City restaurant. Not that the show's just New York, but her career has been here. Like New York City restaurant history, her personal trajectory as a cook and as a chef. And then she's just a great, I never knew this, but she was a great storyteller. She told some funny stories in that interview and that mix to me I remember thinking this is this is like a great this is the show this is what I want this is like not every show needs to have this makeup of elements but this is going somewhere that I really felt good about that one you touched on this term professional curriculum yeah a lot of people think of it as that's my CV that's my resume this is a bunch of restaurants that I worked at as a collective but I've, I've never heard of it phrased in that way before and I think I shared with you that the the listener might be the culinary school student or the line cook. And so after interviewing so many people and bringing up that topic on so many shows with so many of these high-performing chefs, have you noticed commonalities in people's professional curriculum? Because obviously these people work at different places, but is there a like step outside of your comfort zone slash move abroad slash like any commonalities there that I you would impart on the, on the listener? I think probably, I haven't thought about it that way. I think probably, you know, if I sat down and charted it out, there's probably some like groups that would start to materialize. You know, I do, I, but what I mean by professional curriculum is, I think you know what, you know, yeah, I just mean yeah. whether or not you went to cooking school, I think, you know, the people who become our most compelling chefs and, and maybe our most successful ones in a lot of cases are people who, Maybe they didn't always know, you know, it's like when you, uh, like, what's the, when you're a kid, what is it when you close your eyes and it's like warmer, you know, like you hide and I you're see. either warmer or colder. Yeah, yeah, like if yeah. you're getting closer, uh, you're warmer, yep, yep, yep. It's, you know, uh, ghost in the graveyard. Isn't that the game? Not where I grew up, but oh, it's okay. probably the same game, yeah, yeah, yeah. but it's like, you know, are you getting closer to the thing or mm -hmm. further? Mm -hmm. And the person who's kind of in charge will tell you warmer, colder, right? Marco I, Polo. Marco Polo is one in of the them. Pool. Yeah. In the pool. Yeah, yeah. So this is, well, no, Marco Polo, though, you just say one person Marco says Polo. Marco yeah, and then yeah, the yeah. other person hiding like says Polo. Yeah, you're right, yeah. you're right, you're right. Anyway, I can't remember, but the upshot is I feel like that's what a chef's early, an aspiring chef's cook days are like, right? Like you, you, you start off you maybe have a sense, I want to be this kind of a chef, right? And probably that involves some intersection of a, a, a level of formality and precision or not, and then a style, right? And, and I, 
if you're smart and strategic, you pick jobs that feed those two things, right? So, you know, are, are, do you want to be at the very pinnacle of, I guess, what we still call fine dining, you know, where knife work and precision cuts and all this kind of thing is, is, is valued? Do you want to do something that's more kind of unfussy, rustic, whatever you want to call it? I've long since stopped putting those two things in opposition to each other. I don't believe in it. I don't believe in stratifying. I don't believe that what you get at a restaurant like Per Se, which I love, is superior innately to what you might get at an amazing Thai restaurant in Queens that no one's ever heard of. I, I don't. I don't. I've. I used to probably think that way. I, I, I've long since stopped. But whatever it is you want to do, I think you pick jobs that are going to give you that experience. So let's. If we take someone who maybe wants to do, you know, their somewhat personal spin on traditional Thai food. Okay. Well, what? Okay. If you're not Thai yourself, and you're still gonna go for it and risk, you know, being accused of appropriation (laughs) and all of that. Well, then maybe you need to go to Thailand. You know, when you get to Thailand, it might be as important to spend some time getting introductions into people's homes as it is into restaurants, you know, and then you may want to go to different places around if you're an American chef, the U.S. that are doing great Thai food uh, in all different kinds of restaurants, you know. And, and then you may zero in on something and, and, and go, oh, you know, this really appeals to me. You know, I, 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 whenever I speak at a cooking school, if I get asked that blanket question, like, what's your advice for young cooks? Which is so hard. Yeah, but Can what, it, well, it's not a good question. It, totally. It's, it's, totally. It's not. Advice it's, for to do what? Right. right? Like, for, but what, for me as a person. The like, answer, I've, I've, I just came out once, thank God, because mm. I, I didn't want to seem like I couldn't answer that question. But what I said was, you know, be attuned to what turns you on yep. and don't worry about why. Yep. Right? Yep. A lot of 100%. the more compelling chef narratives of the last 20 years make no sense at the time, right? David Chang. David Chang comes up working in French, high end French kitchens like Danielle, right? I'm older than you are. I was around New York when he opened the first Momofuku noodle bar. No, everybody was like, what? It was exciting. It got word of mouth really fast, but it was like this guy who used to work for Danielle opened like a a counter noodle bar and he's doing pork buns and like, what? He's one of the most successful chefs in the world. That made no, that did not compute at the time, you know? And I think... Those are the stories that are really capturing people's imagination now, you know, and I think you take a dotted, you could draw a dotted line directly from what he did to what, I mean, not as well known a name, but like Huni Kim, who also was at Danielle, who then opened G, which is still around, and Han John, which is sadly no longer around, but one of my favorite restaurants in New York while it was here. You know, this really cool, you know, recognizably Korean, but some of it was his own take on it. You know, and then there's people like, there's a chef in New York named Sonny Lee. Do you know that? I don't know if you know that name. It sounds super familiar. So, Sonny... I can't remember if she worked. She definitely worked at Blue Hill Stone Barns Uh at one point. She definitely intersected with Greg Baxstrom of Olmstead, who we were talking about before. But... 
you know, Sunny does, you know, banchan are traditionally side, like side dishes, right. for lack of a better phrase, in Korean cuisine. Sunny does this thing. She calls it banchan by Sunny. And, and she kind of makes the banchan the center of attention, right? And that's her own thing that's evolved over time. Now, I think you draw a line from somebody like Sunny to somebody like Huni to what David did, you know? And, but all of these are people just kind of following their own star. And I'm sure in none of these cases were, did they start off with these highfalutin French kitchen jobs thinking, this is where I'm going to end up, you know? But gradually, that's where their, whatever you want to call it, spirit, inspiration, whatever, that's where it all led them. And I believe that's where the best, most compelling, successful cooking comes from. I think it has to be, and it might be French, you know? You know, I had a conversation with someone recently, which I probably shouldn't even talk about, but I'll be as, as like blonde, blandly generic as I can. But it was a chef of color doing a certain type of food. And, you know, a friend of mine, we did not have it together, but a friend of mine said, you know, that they, one of the, they didn't respond to it as well as I did. And one of the reasons was they thought it was like white man's food. Mm. And I'm like, well, does everyone of color have to mine their own personal background? You know, can, yeah. can, a, yeah, yeah. can, can someone of a, a Latin or Latinx, if you prefer, background not be jazzed by French food? You know, yeah. like, is that, a, is that not okay? I don't know why that's not okay. You know, I, I think whatever works for you. You know, we were talking about Alex Stupak before. I mean, the... There's a per, you know, uh, there's a personal reason. You know, his wife is Mexican American. He spent years loving Mexican food. He did a lot of homework. That happens to be what really floated his boat. You know, and he took it very seriously. And you know, but I, whatever it is, and whyever it is, I, I think, you know, when I interview chefs, I often will say like, what was it about this that appealed to you, if you can even put words to it? Because I think as often as not, it's like love at first sight. There's just something animal in you that responds to something. And in some ways, maybe it's best not to examine it, you know, and, and just, and just, you know, as a chef friend of mine in California likes to say, just let it happen, you know, just like see where it takes you, you know? And I do think, I think being alive to your own reaction to things is invaluable. And I, I, I don't think you get taught that. But I think the people, you know, who have had the most success, who are the people whose books we read and the people we watch on shows like Chef's Table, like, I think those are people who somewhere along the way, they had that, they had that moment, you know, the light fell just right and they saw their lane and like they understood who they were on the plate and they just went in on that, you know, and I think that's... I think that's where happiness lies. I think that's true for anyone who does something expressive. I think I had no intention of writing about chefs when I was growing up. I wanted to be a screen. I stumbled into this life, absolutely stumbled into it. And, I, you know, I love it. You know, I used to work for a film producer in my 20s. And I remember him giving an intern like a welcome talk one day. And he was saying, you know, as you watch movies, this person at the time was like probably a student at NYU, right? Just... Be aware of what you like and don't worry about why and don't worry about if anyone else likes it. Just worry about if you like it. 
because those are probably the movies you're going to want to produce, direct, write, whatever, when the time comes, you know? And if you go to the film world, like, is there a more successful director in the last 25 years than Quentin Tarantino? Those movies are, like, those are just the product of, you know, all these movies. Yeah, and all these movies he watched when, you know, famously now, when he was a video store clerk, you know, just like a sponge for all these movies that his mind chews up and spits out as as their own thing you know but i think he's unquestionably an artist you know but who saw that coming you know and you know the proof is how many you know there's so many people who want to be him and they do stuff and it's just well i think that's what where people get stuck is following the path of trying to be someone and and by definition if you do that you will always be second place to quentin tarantino yeah, or like how many chef memoirs want to be Tony Bourdain? Exactly. And none of them have been. Yep. Some people have written good books. I think the ones who have done, you know, like when Gabrielle Hamilton wrote Blood, Bones, and Butter, but that was her own book. She wasn't mm-hmm. trying to be Tony, mm-hmm. you know? I write my stuff. I'm not comparing myself to Tony, who was like my North Star in a lot of ways. But, you know, when I, I've, I've accepted my place as kind of, you know, the geeky friend <laughs> of the chef world on, you know, on the margins, yeah. you know, who's been accepted, you know, right. like I, this is really dating myself, but it was such people probably still know it. You know, I used to walk into parties with like, you know, it'd be me and like three chefs, you know, we'd walk into a party and people were like, really Andrew. And I just would go, do you, re- do you remember happy days? Yeah. 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 So I would go point to the chefs and be like Fonzie yeah. and then point to myself and go Richie Cunningham. <laughs> You know, I've, I've, for whatever reason, I've been accepted in a world where I stand out like a sore thumb, you know, but it's, you know, I've been at this point, it's like most of my friends are chefs. I don't have that many friends who are writers, you know, chefs. I mean, a good, my good friend, Evan Sung is a photographer. Mm -hmm. I don't have that many. I have a few friends who are writers, but I, you know, never having worked at a magazine or a website or a blog or like, I never spent time in those rooms. So I never developed that network. I, I am at a point in my life now where, you know, I, there's a lot of writers I've met because they asked, you know, wanted to have coffee when they first showed up and get some advice. And like, you know, I know people like that. But yeah, I don't, my social circle is much more in the, in the kitchen realm. So I wanted to ask you, because as I was kind of scrolling back through your Instagram and seeing what restaurants in New York get you excited. Yeah. As you go to a new place, whether it's super hyped up or hole in the wall or undiscovered gem or, or, or what have you. And you walk in and, you know, whether you're solo or, or eating with someone, what do you look for in a, in a new restaurant, Oops. menu, chef's expression? I think it, well, I think first of all, I think every lunch or dinner comes with its own kind of rules of engagement. So like, what am I doing? Am I just going out to dinner with my wife? Yeah, yeah. So if I'm just going out to dinner with my wife, my wife doesn't care about, she doesn't want a tasty menu. Got it. You know, I'm really high on this restaurant right now in Brooklyn called Clover Hill. We we went, my wife and I went there. Oh, did you? Yeah, we took your recommendation. I, I hope went. it was so good. It was in the, it, this question is in the context, I can show you my notes after. It's in the context of Clover Hill. <laughs> okay, so Clover Hill, you know, Kate doesn't do tasty menus. So I went, I, 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 I walked by it. We just moved back to Brooklyn, thank God, after seven years in suburbia. And I was walking around and I walked by it and I was like, 
what is this restaurant? Why don't I? It looks so cute. It was a Saturday Incredibly morning. Incredibly cute. Incredibly cute. It's such a cool vibe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And but this was like in the morning. There was one person behind the bar, you know, in the kitchen. I could barely see them. And I, I looked it up, and you know, the chef there is from Charlie Mitchell. I think mm-hmm. is you know he's worked at Bettany and Pers- and Eleven Madison, and it's another one of the really high-end New York places. Oh, One White Street yep. in Tribeca. That's right. And, huh, I was really interested. So it's a tasty menu restaurant, but a la carte at the bar. Well, I, w- I went and ate at the bar because my wife won't do a tasty menu. And 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 then I was going to go, I made a reservation that same night to come back a week later with someone I had plans with, a chef. And at the last second, she had an emergency and I didn't want to cancel my reservation. I couldn't find anyone last second. I mean, it's a big commitment to call someone on like two hours notice and say, do you want to go do like seven courses or whatever? So I messaged, I, I met the guys when I was there and I messaged them and I said, hey, this friend of mine had an emergency. I don't want to cancel. Do you mind if, can, you, can we do a la carte at a table? And they were like, sure. So I haven't had the tasting menu yet. Got it. But so if it's a night out with my wife, I, I generally, because I try to, you know, live the hospitality ethos, even though I'm not in the business. I just want her to be happy. So it's pretty, we keep it pretty simple. I mean, we go, we live now three blocks from the revivified Gage and Tolner. We've yet to eat. I've eaten at a table there. She and I often just go to the bar. We just went Saturday night before a movie and we get like some fries and some raw bar and maybe one main course thing and maybe a dessert. And you know, a couple of martinis and or, or margaritas, and and that's fun. that's great for us. There's a restaurant called Bar in Brooklyn. Mark Saint Jacques is the chef. I love that restaurant. She does too. You know, probably my favorite restaurant right now for the last year and a half or so has been Francie yep. in Williamsburg, which I absolutely love. But there again, it's like it's pretty classic. Service is great. I think Chris Chipolone's food is amazing, and Kate loves it. You know, and and you sometimes we just go to the bar now, you know, and just have a course or two. Separate of my marriage, yeah. <laughs> you know, it depends. Like if I'm going out with food people, sometimes the mission is, you know, I want to go. We're gonna go to a, we're gonna go to a dinner that's almost gonna be like going to a museum. You know, we're gonna go whether it's a taste. Well, you mentioned a terra before. Yep. A terra to me was that you. For people who don't remember, a terra had like a, a horseshoe counter with a kitchen in the middle. It was a tasty menu restaurant. And then there was like one table, I think, that sat six. Mm-hmm. Just um, behind the counter. Just behind the counter, meaning like between yeah, the yeah. counter and the front door. Totally. Yeah. And 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 to me, that was like the kind of restaurant where I would go with food people. And we were going there to eat and talk about what we were eating. Mm-hmm. Like that, we weren't, I would not, you don't go there for a business dinner. You don't go there with someone who wants the the garden salad and the roast chicken. Like you go there with someone who literally, when the when the staff says, is there anything you can't eat? You The answer's, unless it's an allergy, which I've since developed an allergy, but oh, no. it's okay, almonds. I got almonds, yeah, got it. Yeah, it's okay. But, but you know, other than that, I just say, what are, you know, like just send it, you know? That's who goes to a restaurant like that. If it's a restaurant like that, I mean, the, I'd probably be a good Michelin reviewer because like first and foremost for me, it is the food, you know, at this moment in time after or during whatever we're saying about COVID, I'm not really interested in a lot of bells and whistles. I'm not really interested in, 
you know, kind of a show-offy experience. I'm not, like, I'm not interested, and I don't say this, I loved it. I loved it. I loved it when it was doing its thing. But, you know, like the 11 Madison Park of, of 10 years ago, which at the time, I wrote a love letter to it once on my blog at the time. But I'm not looking for that right now. Got it. But I am, you know, if it's really cool food and exciting, I'm happy to have it presented pretty simply. I, I'm kind of aligned more with people probably a little younger than me than older than me and that I really don't have a huge need or desire to get dressed up. You know, it's one of the things I love in Brooklyn is you can go to a great, you can go to Francie or you can go to Clo- Clover Hill. I mean, I'm sitting here wearing a, a black lucky pullover knit shirt and jeans. I could walk into either of those places. I could go there right from here, you know, and I love that. I really do. Once in a while, sure, it's fun, you know. So that, you know, so anyway, for for kind of what we might call artistic food, I still like it with the right people. For everyday food, to be honest, I, is this a dumb thing to say? I just want it to be good. Is that is I, that crazy? I want all of you folks to crush it at work. But if you're in an environment where you feel like growth is hard to come by, it can be frustrating, especially considering that you're probably sacrificing a lot to be in your current position. Just hoping that someone will teach you the skills required to improve can feel like crossing your fingers and holding your breath, and you waste months or even years with that strategy. To solve this problem, I just relaunched my completely free five-day kitchen productivity challenge, taking content from my full course, Total Station Domination, and structuring it in a way that gets sent straight to your inbox, again, absolutely free. If you want skills that I've used in high caliber kitchens to push myself beyond where I thought my limits are, there's a link in the description of this podcast where you can sign up. I hope you're enjoying this episode so far. Let's dive back in. Are you familiar with Virgil Abloh, the designer? Who, Just who, that mask. So he he was the head of almost all of this stuff for Louis Vuitton before okay. he, he passed. And he had a brand with Nike called Off-White, which is like crazy streetwear, hype beast, kind of super expensive and he had this line as he was talking about his rules for creativity. And he has this line where he goes, it should appeal to the tourist and the purist. Oh, I love and that. And I love that with yeah. food. Yeah. The person who is from some town just outside of Kansas City and doesn't really ever go out, they can sit down and have your food. And you and I can go out. We've had all the tasting menus that you can imagine. We sit down. And, and we also enjoy it too. Well, years ago, the epitome of that to me, I mean, he has a very successful restaurant now. It's just no longer where he was. But, you know, when Alfred Portali years ago was at the Gotham Bar and Grill, you know, Alfred had trained at all these three-star Michelin restaurants in France, came back. But like you could go to the Gotham, you could go with a table full of food journalists or you could bring like your mom, you know, and, and there was nothing that was going to, throw your mom off and there was nothing well the journalist wouldn't have ordered the garden salad you know but it was there you know my chef in in norway that i worked for last would tell we would ask us me and the other sous chef that were there when we would put up a new dish for the tasting menu he'd look at it and he'd be like would you serve that to your mom and it was a very good way to swing it back the other way because that's our nature we want to cook we want to impress the chefs Right. We want to impress the industry person. We want to impress the critic who just sat down. And sometimes that'll take you too far away from mom. And so to swing it back a little bit. Yeah. Like, would you describe this to your mom and would she understand it? And if the answer is no, it's like maybe you need to, again, don't take it all the way back to zero. Don't delete it. But it's like it's, it, 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 was, it was helpful for me when I would get too, you know, in the clouds. 
Yeah, well, this is to me, you know, there's this age old thing is like cooking an art or a craft, you know, and like the I mentioned Alex Stupak being my first guest. We had this conversation where he's like he thinks it can be. I think he said maybe artistic, mm. but then you bump up against things because art is supposed to evoke an emotion. This was his part of his definition. And, you know, he was like, you, you don't want food to evoke sadness. You know, I, I mean, I'm, but there are probably chefs out there who are doing food that probably they do want it to do that. You know, it's, it's, it's a funny thing. I mean, I, I had a moment years ago, I went to a very, exclusive dinner with like a group of chefs it was hard to get into and it was it was i'd put it in the modernist realm okay i'll just say that and then a few days later i was having a very in new york a very traditional italian lunch at a restaurant good i mean really good with one of the chefs i'd been at this thing with and i said you know this thing we went to the other night it was audacious, it was ambitious, it was impressive, it was technically off the charts, and, the, and he, he knew what I was going to say, and he's just nodding, he goes, and? And I pointed at this little salad I was eating, and the, and the, and the plate of salumi in front of us, and the, and the bread, right? And I said, I will be goddamned if this lunch isn't 100 times more soul-satisfying. And I, it was true. I get it. It was true. I get it. You know, and sometimes I will go to restaurants. You know, to me, if I'm going to go to a place that's like really trying to light the world on fire, I still want to be moved. Mm. You know, like go on that. Huh? Go on that. What does that mean? Well, I mean, I just I'm not just interested. Like if you're going to do box scores, it's not enough for me to have, you know, if 10 is the the top. Right. Mm. It's not enough for me for like knife work. 10, you know, presentation. 10 flavor maybe flavor even is 10 but then there's like emotional resonance or you know wow factor whatever you Mm -hmm. want to call it and that's you know you could have all those tens i just mentioned you can have an emotional resonance of like two you know Mm -hmm. and and often you do and that really leaves me cold and i don't know what i'm paying for because it's expensive and and usually to eat like that and i just yeah. I mean, I think people who can, who can straddle that line, I think it's really cool. I'm trying to think who over the years has really kind of knocked me out like that. Mm-hmm. You know, I think I, he's, he's not a part of any of those restaurants anymore. And he, I have to say, he's somebody I wrote a cook, cookbook with. But, you know, I think some of what Michael White did in his Italian restaurants, like the, the fancier, like Marea, mm-hmm. mm-hmm. I, I thought Marea was pretty, pretty great. I, and I was just as happy at the bar there with some crudo and a pasta as I was at a table doing the full four or five course, whatever it was, you know, recommend, they had a recommended number of courses. I think that's the only meal I've had at Maria to twice is the, you know, exactly what you said. You do, you do a, a starter, you do a pasta, you do a piece of fish and you just, you know, and a dessert. Yeah. So, but like, I loved that, mm-hmm. you know, where he did Osteria Marini, you know, which was like a straight up Emilia Romagna. He trained in Emilia Romagna and I went to Emilia Romagna with Michael and like the food at Osteria Marini, it may still be, I don't know. He's not with the group anymore. And mm-hmm. it, it, I've been to Morea since he decamped and it was still fantastic. Osteria Marini to me, like 
sometimes I would, especially like the season we're going into now, that food was so hearty and so good. And it was like having been over there with him. I mean, it like, you know, I always like with Italian food, I'm always like, did it bring a tear to your eye? Mm -hmm. Like if it didn't bring a tear to your eye, it failed, (laughs) you know? Yeah. Again, I'm partial. I'm working with him on something, but you know, I feel like, 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 I feel like Danielle's restaurants pull that off ballooned with French food. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I feel like, you know, Gabriel Kreuther is a restaurant that I love. I send more people, because he's not as known as like Keller or Blood or Hum or, you know, but to me, Gabriel's right there. To me, he is, the and, and Joe Anthony, his chef, de, his chef de cuisine, I, I think is great. Mm-hmm. And, and my God, I just absolutely love the food there. I think it's exciting. I think he really minds, you know, the breadth of what you get exposed to as a New Yorker. You know, I think it would surprise people to go into a room that looks like that. And, you know, he's the former chef of the modern and John George's former, you know, whatever it was, sous chef or chef de cuisine, whatever the title was. But, you know, you walk in there and there's like jalapeno peppers and, you know, like he he pulls from all over the place. And, you know, that stuff to me is pretty great. But just as often as not, I mean, I'm not, I'm seriously... I go through waves. There, there are times where I just want to like devour the newest. You know, I'm getting ready to go to LA. I'm going to speak. I'm going to speak at the LA Chef Conference. When's the last time you were in LA? Like mid December of 2019. Okay, right before right yep. before the plague, mm-hmm. and I haven't been back. I, I I could have gone back by now. I just haven't gotten around to it. And but I, I spoke at the last LA Chef Conference, and I I, I was like, I'm going to go. I'm going to go. And then when Brad Metzger, who puts it on, he and I are friends. And, you know, I said, I'm going to come. And then he said, oh, I want you to speak. So now I'm going to speak. But I'm going there for the week. And I haven't figured out where I'm going to go yet. But like, you know, I may just go to Vespertine, you know. I may just, I don't know him at all. You know, I may just do that. I'm interested. He's from that same cohort as Alex. Yeah, I know. Mm -hmm. But, you know, and I very distinctly remember we were on stage together promoting Chef's Drugs and Rock and Roll. But Ruth Reichel said to me that the late Jonathan Gold Mm -hmm. told her she was going to hate it. And then she went and she loved it. Wow. And that made me very curious, Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, but I'll also go to Capo in Santa Monica and, and eat a steak and some pasta. You know, I love that restaurant. And, and I'm sure I'll hit a food truck, you know, I'll go get some tacos. I mean, I'll hit, I'll do the full breadth of stuff as much as you can in a week. For me, it's going to be about how many, you know, places and friends places I return to versus, you know, I've never eaten at, what's it, Evan Funky's place. Oh, Felix. I've never been to Felix. Mm-hmm. Never. Mm-hmm. I really want to try that pasta. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's like, it's, it's probably the most hyped pasta in the United States. Mm -hmm. You know, I'd like to try that, you know. And in the same part of town, I love Dave Barron's Pajoli. Pajoli. I love, Mm -hmm. love, Mm -hmm. you know. I've been there like three times. Jolina? Have you been to Jolina? Yes. Yeah, also phenomenal. For breakfast. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Go for dinner. Yeah. It's phenomenal. Yeah. (laughs) Can I just say? Yeah. I won't say it. I'll tell you off air. (laughs) All right. I had one of those moments there. At Pajoli. No, it's Jelena. Oh, Jelena, okay. Yeah, we went for breakfast and I asked, I ordered bacon and I wanted it. I said, can they, can you make, and do the bacon well done? Yeah. And they said the kitchen won't do bacon well done. <sighs> I don't, I don't really believe in yeah, that. interesting. I don't really, that's like, hmm. I don't know. Yeah, why? I don't know why. 
It's interesting. It was delicious bacon. Yeah, yeah. But that, <laughs> I, should so just, I should have said no, that. I, I'm sorry, Jelena. No, okay. I love you, Jelena. No, I mean, if we, if we cut it out, we cut it out. It's no, just, it's your show. Yeah, but I, No, but that kind of, I don't understand that kind yeah, of, yeah. I don't understand that kind of, I mean, okay, that's, that's your feeling, mm-hmm. but I'm not asking you to transform a dish. I'm just asking for another. I get it. Another 30 seconds no. of fire, <laughs> you know. It's, it's one of the reasons why when I, Try to, I try to document experiences going out to eat and share them because I, I, it's what I would have wanted when I was, you know, writing some of my first menus for myself is just to be able to kind of like visually flip through a tasting menu. Like that's why I kind of like oh, yeah. post my food videos uh-huh. online is because it's this, but I, but I, I'm very clear to not put a number rating on it. I don't put out a best meals of 2020 yes. or 2021, right. you know, like a, a listicle kind of thing because I call it this specific night at this specific place with these specific people. Mm-hmm. And to your point, the food could have been amazing on any other night, but because of a weird interaction with a service person or the, the, the dish that it, you, you get all hyped on this pasta place and you go and the pasta is sold out. So you have to order something else or right. so, you know, something to that effect. Yeah. I just it's think, like seeing the understudy at a Broadway show. Yeah. And, and, and we're not playing the same beats on a beat machine in, in kitchens, right? We're cooking with new ingredients on potentially a new menu on that with maybe even a new staff because one of the guys didn't show up yeah. on that specific night. So I'd... listen, I, I sympathize with all this. I, I, I try to be the most, I try to be like the anti jerky, you know, food entitled food writer. Like I, I mean, unless I get like raw chicken, I, I don't send things back. I don't. Have you always been like that? Not when I was not, if when I was anonymous, like when I was, when I was like a young kid, you know, in the film business, no, if something was inedible or not good, I mean, it would have to be really bad. I wasn't never, I was never, you know, I'd, I'd been a bus boy and stuff like that. I was never mean, but you know, yeah, if something was terrible, then maybe I would send it back rarely. But now, I mean, it's, it's very weird for me now because certainly in New York, but also in other places, like I just book on, you know, Resi or on Open Table. But like as often as not now, I, you know, like somebody spot knows who I am. And that's weird for me. It's, it's all, almost always nice. But I, I, because of that, I don't, I don't, I try not to complain. I really try not to complain. And if I ever, I, I almost don't do it anymore. But if people ask me to get them in somewhere, I now actively tell them, listen, you are, you are not allowed to complain, uh, you know, like you are, yeah. you know, like these people extended themselves and, you know, cause I once had set someone up at a restaurant and like they complained about the table, you know? <sighs> and I was like, you can't, no, yeah. no, no, yeah, but yeah. no, it'll ha- and it would have to be, I, I, I won't say where, but you know, a couple of years ago I went out somewhere and I was with one of my professional elders, a, 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 a critic, retired critic, who always would give me grief because I never would voice a complaint to a restaurant. And we got served a, a, a very simple chicken that I, I will say it was inedibly salty. I mean, it was really salty. And, and, and this person said to me, well, I assume you're just going to eat it. We were all sharing. Well, I assume you're just going to eat it all because you won't ever send anything back. And I, I was like, you know what? 
you're right. This is this should go back. And I I I had you know I I I got the attention of our server, and I said, listen, I never do this. And we had only taken like it was a, it was like a pounded out chicken and it had some kind of a sauce and and I, I we had clearly only cut a little piece off one end, so you know like ten inches away on the other side. I said I said this is really salty and I said and honestly if they don't mind you can see we I said just have one of the guys in the back nick a piece from this and they came back and said the kitchen's really sorry. Wow, you know, but it would have to be like that. Yeah, it would yeah, have yeah. to be. And if I were on my own. And that happened, I probably wouldn't have still. I just, I can't, I don't, I don't want, I don't want to make people feel bad. It's a great example though. Cause like there's a, there's a way to do it and there's a way to not do it. But I just, yeah. If it's I, it, like I say, it has to be something. I say raw chicken. Cause like, yeah, that mm. could make you very sick. Right. Like it would have to be something like that. I, I don't, or, you know, here's your, like having told them I don't, I can't eat almonds and then, you know an almond thing drops, sure. you know, but it has to be something like that. But what was the question that led me on this like tangent? Well, we were talking about the, the, the tourist and the purist oh. anecdote on just food creativity, restaurant experience, right? Cause it's clearly like you're yeah. in the best city, one of the best cities in the world for it. Yes. And then we were talking about LA. That's that's how also how. Oh, we LA. Right. Yeah. And I don't know where I'm going to go. Not yeah. Yet. That's going to be a hard week for mm-hmm. me to allocate. You know, I only have, if I take the conference out, cause that's a full day at night and I think I haven't booked my return ticket but I think I'm taking a red eye home that Friday so that gives me four days and nights if you count my departure night it's not much LA is a big city it's huge I'll, I'll share a couple places with you when we turn the mics off it because I, I was there a month and a half ago yeah I had a really lot of good good food experiences good it's 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 on it's on LA is on the the thing I was going to ask you was do you have talks on different topics kind of like preloaded that you like to speak on or is there oh you mean like a like a yeah, like when like you get a, asked like go... a like a thing where you could like pull the string and like <laughs> no okay you talk about the same kind of topics i don't give that many talks yeah um yeah, yeah. i'm uh, trying to get better at it i'm tr- I, I would like to you know i mean i did have a little bit of a thing like that like with chef's drugs and rock and roll and i did post a thing it's so funny because i i didn't realize it but i live right around the corner from one of the places i went to you know when 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 that book came out i posted a little thing on instagram and said like hey if you want me to come talk to your team about american restaurant and chef history I'll come you know and I didn't do it many places I actually did it at per se mm-hmm. I got a very nice they were the, that was the first place that asked when I posted like almost immediately cool the the general manager at the time is now I think director of ops for for Keller on the east coast so has New York and also like surf club down in mm-hmm. Florida mm-hmm. got in touch and I went and spoke in the dining room there that was great incredible and then I went and spoke at this place Chirka Brewing Company in downtown Brooklyn, which I live literally around the corner. I walked by the other. I was like, oh, my God, that's the place. Wow. But the chef there at the time, or maybe he was a consultant at the time, Sean Burnett, he has a great Instagram handle, three-star student. He got in touch, and I went and spoke there. I didn't do a lot of them, but, you know, as time allowed and as people wanted. And, I, and then I did go and speak to the culinary historians of Washington, D.C., and I did a version of that. And I spoke to the culinary historians of, I think, Los Angeles. I don't know what tech, I mean, LA is, if you know LA, LA is not just, you know, people don't understand this, but LA is a collection of cities. What most people think of as LA 
is L.A. and Beverly Hills and Santa Monica and Brentwood and Venice and right north. Uh, totally. Yeah. But I think it was the culinary historians of Los Angeles. It might have been of Southern California, mm-hmm. now that I think of it. Anyway, I went and spoke to them. And th- those were all variations on a, on a talk, you know, that I had like post-its in one copy of my book. But that's the only time I've ever really had that. I, I, if I'm honest, I don't, I love the idea of presenting independent individually. In reality, I don't love it because I feel like to really be good at it, you have to be a little bit artificial unless you're a very certain type of person. Got it. I think you have to kind of put on a persona mm-hmm. and I, I have nothing against people who do it, but at some point I realized I don't like doing it. I am much more comfortable. This is why for the longest time, you know, I had my wife do my podcast interviews with me because I didn't like talking myself. I just like to converse, you know, and I'm much more comfortable, whether it's as a guest or as a presenter, I'm much more comfortable dialoguing, you know, then I'm fine. Um, yeah, but I, no, I've never really, you know, I pro- like the university club invited. I, I did that, a version of that talk at the university club. I probably could have gotten repped by a speaker's bureau, you know, but like I, I, it's just causes me a lot of stress, you know, we could, I I have so many other threads to pull on, but I want to make sure I get, I hope I'm not rambling by the way. I feel like I'm being very self-indulgent. I'm like, I keep, I keep finding things that I want to keep pulling on one, one main topic that I would love to hear you speak on before we go into a couple quick rapid fire ones and then we'll, we'll get you out of here is you mentioned as you are talking to some of these chefs, they'll bring up, management and managing Mm. other people Mm -hmm. and people have their own styles the environment certainly influences that sometimes but again common themes lessons takeaways that you've heard chefs talk about that could potentially be an interesting takeaway for the listener of interesting misconceptions or or horror stories or obstacles that people had to overcome that ultimately you see them now running effective organizations what stands out? You know, the thing that probably, I love that question. The thing that stands out to me the most is something that, and he's been on the show, but we didn't talk about it. But Tim Hollingsworth, who has OTM restaurant in Los Angeles, had been the chef de cuisine at the French Laundry. And right before he was the chef de cuisine, when he was a sous chef, he was the, they call it the candidate for the United States at the Bocuse d'Or, which is, and that was the year I wrote a book about the Bocuse d'Or. And so Timmy and I got to be and have remained friends. And he didn't, he had never met me when I got the, that book sold. And he was, he was so nice to me and gave me incredible access. And, you know, they changed the menu at the French Laundry every day. And I was talking to him about the way he talked to the cooks. And he, and I've since heard other people say this, maybe people have said it on the show, but I don't know if they had. But in short, what he, and he didn't use these terms, but basically it was the chef as like your dream coach in a movie that he spoke differently Mm. to everyone in the kitchen. Right, 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 right. Got it. And, and one example was there was a guy in the kitchen of Asian, Asian American, I want to say Korean American, but to be honest, it's been a long, I'm not sure. It's been more than 10 years. And I didn't know that I never interviewed this person, but there was a dish they were going to put on the menu and it involved a broth. And this is for one day. Right. And Tim knew that this cook 
personally was really into tea. And when he was telling the guy how to make this broth, he was like, do this and steep it like the way you would do a so-and-so tea, right? That's a direction that wouldn't have meant anything to anyone else in that kitchen, at least as far as Tim knew, right? And he said this thing to me that he, you know, tried to take each cook on their own terms and to give them direction in a way that would be most useful to them, right? And that was a revelation to me. And, you know, I think that same notion, and this is something that I think people have talked about on my my show a little bit, but it's more stuff I've just talk to people about when we're just shooting the breeze, which, which is, you know, different people respond to different stimulus and, and, or stimuli. And so, you know, there are, there are people who do best with a very gentle nudge. You know, we are living in a time now, and just so I'm clear, I think this is a good thing where, you know, we're trying to have kinder, gentler kitchens. There are people who need to feel urgency, you know, behind a, a, an instruction. There are people who that would be, if you look at them funny, they're crushed. You know, you know, I, I'm waiting to get the hate mail about this. I, I've said it in multiple interviews and it hasn't happened yet, but there are frankly, I mean, we're, what are we at here? We're on 31st street in yep. New York city. Okay. So less than 10 blocks South of here is 11 Madison park. That kitchen to this day, I don't think I'm revealing trade secrets, it's pretty intense. Well, guess what? That's still a hard kitchen to get into. And there are still plenty of people. I mean, you cooked in per se. Per, per se. Mm-hmm. There are still people who want to get pushed like that. They I get s- the DMs every week. I, Which I, ones? The, the, not, not, not the bad ones. The I... That am, people get off on that. No, no. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm in a small town in Oklahoma working at a little tiny burger tavern. It would shoot me over the moon to get pushed in the way that I see 11 Madison Park executing. Right. Now, that's, like I said, I, 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 I don't know how I would be talking about this in a different era, but right now there's an extreme shortage of, of culinary professionals. And I have been very vocal that, you know, Eater recently, LA did a piece about Jordan Kahn. Mm-hmm. And the upshot of the piece is sometimes Jordan Kahn is temperamental and maybe not the most accommodating guy. And, and I don't know why I read that piece. I don't know why that piece exists. Nobody has to work for Jordan Kahn. They weren't, they weren't saying he was like hitting people, you know, or like, okay, he's a hard ass. Don't work for him. Yeah. There's restaurants in LA that'll pay you a, a, a hiring bonus right now. You know, like, if, but if you want to go work in a super demanding environment where people are shelling out upwards of $800 for their dinner and expecting perfection, and, and the person who's the chef owner is going to try to meet that expectation with every dish that goes out of the kitchen, it's going to get a little heated. That's not for everybody, but I don't, unless there are certain lines that get crossed, I don't consider it. You know, I've heard good counter arguments to this, right? Like I saw Eric Repair interviewed, Mm -hmm. you know, and Eric's a practicing Buddhist and he's gone through his own evolution on this and he's talked about it very openly. But he was like, you know, you see people flying airplanes and they're not screaming at their co-pilots, you know, but they managed to land the plane. And I'm like, okay, that is hard to argue with. That's a great, 
If we were in a debate, he wins the debate, right? It's hard to justify it. Nonetheless, there are people, I have friends, you do too probably, they look back on those days as like it was, it was, it was a trial by fire, they got through it, it made them the cooks they are, they don't manage their own people like that, but they will tell you that. A, a lot of people, you know, and like I said, like every time I do an interview like this and I say this, I'm like bracing for like the hate mail. I'm not exaggerating when I tell you it's, uh, you know, again, I'm going to knock on wood. And if somebody wants to debate me, I'll, I'm happy to talk about it. I'm not saying I advocate it or that's how I would want to be if I were a chef. I just know that there are people who want to be tested that way, the way they were tested by like their high school football coach, you know? Well, we talk about They this. want that person going like, you know, give me 20. Right. You know, they right. want that. Right. Well, we talk about this rebellious side of, of chefs. I mean, I'm literally talking to the guy who wrote, who wrote a book about it. But right. it's, it's, it's this idea of the rebellion when you're tasked with something can often come through in a way. And, and, and I was talking with someone this morning literally about this, how it comes from the other side too, from the cook side. It's like if, if the only time that you will shift into that gear is when you're getting screamed at, that's also not good. Right, because now you're providing this feedback mechanism to your manager of like, well, Justin has that gear, I just have to scream at him to do it. It's like that's also not, you know what I mean? That that feeds this, uh, and and you know, it, it's not how much of that is fueled by me actually ge being genuinely scared, and like then I'm, you know, but but I have worked with people where if there isn't this significant amount of negative reinforcement, there's this again this kind of pushback towards. Listen, where I like to think we've gotten mm -hmm. is that I, I'd like to think we are out of the era, and I'm not naive enough to think this is true 100%, mm -hmm. where like a chef just comes into the kitchen and that's their default mode, right? I like to think we're out of that era. Mm -hmm. I like to think we're in an era, and even Eric, I did interview Eric once on this subject, not for the, my podcast, but just for a blog post I did. And, you know, he said, look, there's still times where I'll get a little upset, but the difference is now, you know, it's, it's a rarity, and I apologize at the end of the night, you know? I'd like to think that's where we are. I like to think we're at, okay, if, if, if the team is not coming through, or there's a weak link, and people need, no pun intended, a fire lit under them, someone's going to do that, you know? And then maybe they'll talk about it at the end of the night, you know? I, 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 my impression is we're, we're more in that mode now than we were 20 years ago, right? And, you know, I, I've said this forever. I, and, and, you know, I, think, I don't think it's a bad thing that everyone has a, a camera in their pocket. I don't. I think it helps keep people in positions of authority in line, you know? And, but a lot of the stuff I hear presented as like, you know, scorched earth level transgressions to me, and this may just be a generational difference. And I'm always quick to say this. It's like a, almost a, it's like a refrain on my show. And I say it to older friends of mine all the time. Things change. Mm -hmm. okay. It's the nature of things to change. I think it'd be great if no one ever got a, had a chef be mad at them again, ever. I think that would be great. I don't think that's probably realistic. But, you know, there's people, I, there's people I know who I think probably have never yelled at a cook. You know, my friend David Waltuck, who had Chanterelle Restaurant, 
for 30 years, you know, even back in the day used to say, you know, I don't believe it yelling at people, the bitterness gets into the food, mm. right? That was like his line. Interesting. Right? And David's a very gentle guy. Now, I don't know, did he ever yell at someone? Maybe he did. I wrote a cookbook with him. I spent a year hanging around that restaurant. I never saw it, you know, and I've seen people yell in a way that would, you know, raise the hair on the back of your neck, you know, like, like I was once having dinner at a, at a very upscale restaurant in New York. And my son at the time was maybe five and I was taking him to go to the bathroom and we took a shortcut through the kitchen. And when we were coming back, the chef was like screaming at a cook and it froze my son frozen. Like he, and I'm like, you know, I became, I was like, nothing to see here. Come on. You know, like mm-hmm. rushed him out, you know? I know it still happens. I don't think it's, I, I don't think it's a good thing, but I mean, you were talking about the management thing. I, I don't know. I think everyone finds their own balance. I think kitchens find their own rhythm and, and tone and temperature. But I think, I think some version of that thing Tim showed me, I, I've always believed that that was, you know, how to get the best out of each person. Contextually. Yeah, but also just who responds to what. Mm. I mean, I, I I think it ought to be possible to have a kitchen. I mean, this is like a tangent we don't have time for, but like, you know, I mean, how much of this boils down to the, 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 the lousy, you know, chickens are coming home to roost financial model of restaurants. Like if there were more bodies in a kitchen, right? There wouldn't be so much pressure. You wouldn't have pressure. Totally, totally. Like all the pressure comes from getting this. You'd feel this, more resourced. Get, yes. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and, mm-hmm. and that whole situation, and it's not the industry's fault, but I, you know, I often feel like the industry takes a position of like this was done to us when in fact, I'm sorry, the entire industry collectively kicked the need for price increases, kicked that can down the road for decades until it broke, until the system broke. And now any increase that will make up that ground, I'm speaking in shorthand, but I think your listeners and and viewers will understand what I mean. The amount that you would have to increase prices to close that gap now will cause sticker shock. It'd be a punch to the gut. And even I, like I have friends, I don't, you know, he talks very openly about it. You know, David Nafeld, Mm -hmm. who has Kefico in San Francisco, former 11 Madison Park Mm -hmm. guy. He's been very outspoken. He's he's written with the help of a collaborator, a couple of pieces for Business Insider about the neat things that have to change in the industry. He started doing this during COVID. And he said straight up, like his prices coming out of COVID were going to go up. I think he said like 40%. And I think he actually, there was just a big piece in the Chronicle about his restaurant. Mm. I don't know if he went up that high. He may have gone high. I don't know. But he, you know, when Amanda Cohen reopened Dirk Candy full on tasting menu again, on the, you know, she did a thing on Instagram saying, okay, all you people who've been saying you want to support restaurants, you know, we've increased our prices. I think it was 30%. Mm -hmm. That sounds right. Now it's time to, you know, walk the walk and come in and and dine here, you know? And she did that while maintaining, you know, that they don't tip. That's a non-tipping restaurant. She's managed to make that work. Most people have failed at that, you know? I'm full of admiration for these people, Mm -hmm. but it's hard. The game from the jump is 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 hard, right? Like if if it was just a case of just cracking the code, someone would have figured it out by now, and they would be super open with sharing it. Chefs aren't, you know, that protective of you know, like if I were going to become a chef right now, you know what I would be doing? I would be I would be I would be a permanent pop up chef. Uh huh. 
I would be, try to build up a name to the point where I could charge top dollar. And whether I found a vacant space and did like my own resident, you know, got a mm -hmm. deal on it for three months and in a city where I hadn't operated yet, or whether it was like one night or two nights only at a host restaurant or at a, and I would try to build, you know, like what like the circus is coming to town, you know? And I would, I would try to make a living at that. I honestly would try to have very few employees. I would, I, this is, does it make sense? You, yeah, yeah. you know I better mean, than I do. Well, I, I but that seems this, appealing to me. Sure. I went on this rant the other day talking about how people think that pop-ups are so cool because you make all this money in one day when in reality, like you, you pop up on Saturday, but it's Tuesday through Saturday of gearing up for, you know, so you need yeah. to make sure that, and, and it, it works if you plan for it. There's a great example of these two guys out of L.A. They're, they're Marcus Jernmark and Robert Sandberg. Mm. Marcus was at Akavit for mm -hmm. a while. Then he was at Fronson. Yep. And then that's where he met Robert. And, and now they're in L.A. They're starting a project called Habit Chew, H-A-B-I-T-U-E. And how they're starting is they're, it's a 12-top booking. I think it's either at their house, one of their houses, or they come to your house and they cook. 12 people, it's, it's, it's one button on the website. You can click and book it, and it's 15 grand for 12 people. And that's how they're going to kind of develop their menu and get a following. And, you know, that's, that's, that's an expensive night. But in a city like L.A., for people who helped get a Swedish chef from two stars to three stars, you know, that's a, that's a compelling story. And they're yeah. sourcing some really incredible product. And their execution obviously is off the charts. But that, I think, is an interesting kind of place to end at least this part of the conversation. I want to, I want to, I want to get to some rapid fires because I'm sure. so curious your answers. They don't, they don't have to be rapid fire answers. But what's one thing you've changed your mind on in recent memory about the industry? Anything could be about. We haven't even talked about tennis yet. <laughs> like, are you a tennis fan? Did I'm I know super this? Huge. Yeah, oh, yeah, do you play? Huge. I, 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 my, my high school was too small to have a tennis team, and so I taught myself how to play. And I, I'm in a doubles league right now. I played oh, singles wow. throughout the summer also cried went to see fed leave well if you, i mean <laughs> the week. thing that i probably most recently changed my mind on is is you know watching all the federer think pieces and stuff uh -huh, uh -huh. because you know he has fewer slams now than 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 nadal and and joke i i've become convinced that he actually is probably the most important tennis player ever agreed 100 mm percent. -hmm. the way he carried himself the way he played the game and uh, you didn't think that previously or you I was more about keeping, the numbers. Keeping track of different metrics. Mm -hmm. Understood. Yeah. But Understood. I think Roger is single. I also feel like he's the pace car. Mm. You know, I, I, I was talking to a friend the other day and I was like, you know, if if Federer weren't there, if Djokovic and Nadal were, I mean, this is real inside tennis for people <laughs> who are listening. But, you know, if Djokovic and Nadal to win Grand Slam titles had to beat, and no, these are all great players, right? But had to beat Thomas Burdick, or Marcus Bagdadis, or... Andy Murray. Well, Murray was... But still... Sure. They probably could have slept in a couple more days, uh, you know? But they yeah, yeah. had to make themselves... Mm -hmm. They had to squeeze every ounce of talent mm -hmm. out of their bodies. Mm -hmm. And I think that all started with Roger. I mean, when Sampras retired, everybody was like, oh, who knows when someone will approach this record? And these guys are all at least six majors ahead of him. Within the industry, to be honest, I, I'll tell you something I've changed my mind on, and I actually am about to see if they'll come on the show and talk about it, some, some of the people who've been doing this. You know, there was a piece written on the West Coast. I don't understand it, but there was like a period of time where 
like it was like journalistic hunting season on Jessica Kozlow. Okay. You know, who has Squirrel. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. You know, there was the jam thing and yep. whatever. And But then there was also this thing like there was a piece written where it was like she doesn't credit her cooks for their ideas. Like she, she only gives them credit in Instagram posts and cookbook head notes. And, and I'm like, wait a minute. That's everybody. Nobody does that. Who credits their, their cooks like on a menu? And honestly, there were all these people quoted. It was an eater piece. Who I, I honestly, if I had a place to write it, somebody, I would love for somebody to go do it, like go check up on all the people who trashed her in that article and see if they're crediting their cooks. Because I don't think any of them are. Ooh. I don't think any of them are. And recently, Calicchio was on my show and, you know, returning guest. And we were talking about this and, and, he, and I was like, like to me, it, I love the idea of it. You know, the flaw in it to me had been like, well, let's say you have a cook who has a dish on the menu and it's the one clunker and it's the one that gets singled out by the critic, right? Are you going to throw that person under the bus? Is the critic going to make a point of identifying that person who you gave like the spotlight to? Having said that, and I mentioned her in this interview, Amanda Cohen has started doing this at her restaurant and good for her. You know, and and somebody else I think I saw recently is doing it. I noticed during COVID, I went and ate at Gramercy Tavern. This was before Mike had appointed Arita, who's currently the chef de cuisine there. I don't know if there was another. There, maybe there was a chef de cuisine. I don't know. It was in the first year of COVID. I was eating outside. <laughs> but Mike at the bottom of the menu had put like just the team, mm-hmm. you know. And I, you know. It involves a certain amount of updating of menus and stuff, but I, I think that's actually kind of cool. I've changed, I'm changing my mind quickly. I'm very eager. I mean, I'm, I'm sure I'll have made the call before this drops, but I'm, I'm planning to reach out to Amanda Got it. to see if like she and maybe one or two of the people she's credited would do like a little roundtable talk with me because I'm curious to know what made her do it. And I'm curious to know what it means to those cooks, right? But industry-wise, so my answers are Federer and dish credit. Interesting. But I think, why not? Yeah. Why not? I think, I think if you can do it in a way that protects the cooks from this one concern I mentioned. But you know what? Okay, maybe you designed a clunker and you got credit for it. And maybe you're going to take a knock in, in, the, in, the, in the times in a review. You'll live. You're going to have to do that when you're a chef in your own right, have your own restaurant. Brings us all the so way back to where we started. Maybe that's part of the learning curve. I don't know. I, <laughs> yeah. I, but I am changing my mind about that being viable mm. and not mandatory, but if chefs feel the, you Accepted. know, if more, more normal, mm. more, more mm. part of the mix, you know, there are chefs who I know believe that's not a given, but as I, I say it all the time, things change. I think once I'm 55 now, right? I think once you stop accepting change, that is when you start becoming old. You know, I think you have to accept it in everything. Life, culture, society, dress codes, like you <laughs> got to accept things. Change. You're not going to be the one to stop the tide. Yeah. So you may as well roll with it. So, yeah, but that's the thing that I feel like recent in, the, in recent memory that I've been most probably wrong about. And I'm happy to admit that. It's a Saturday morning, your first day of your weekend, and you kind of stumble into your kitchen and you're making eggs for yourself. How do you make those eggs? <laughs> Gosh, 
I probably only ever really scramble eggs. Uh, once in a while, I'll fry an egg and slide it over like a bowl of a chili or a cacio pepe or something like that. But more often than not, I scramble eggs using Julia Child's omelet method. Interesting. Yeah. So, you know, whatever, olive oil, butter in the pan, beat the eggs, usually add just a splash of water or milk, get the pan nice and hot, eggs in, and then I gradually, with a spatula, pull in to the center so that the, the uncooked part reaches the outside, the edges, and you get like a really nice, fluffy uniform. It's easy to go well done if for example, in my case, somebody wants them that way, like my wife. My wife's the same. <laughs> and then the other thing I will do once in a while, and it's maybe, I think it's the only like very identifiably Jewish thing I probably, like we're here the day after Rosh Hashanah. Like I, I didn't do, I don't, I don't celebrate, observe, whatever, and nothing. But I am a sucker for lox, eggs, and onion. So once in a while, I all, I keep smoked salmon at home. Mm-hmm. I love smoked salmon. Mm-hmm. And I get Acme smoked salmon from Brooklyn. And once in a while, I will have, I'll do onions, lox eggs and onions, which is for people who don't nice. know, it's just scrambled eggs. Well, you saute the onions first and then the eggs. And then at the last second, I throw in some sliced salmon, just enough to warm it. And I just, oh my God. That sounds delicious. I absolutely love that. Once in a blue moon, I'll just feel the, the earth. My ancestors come bubbling up. What else? As someone who, who's so book focused, is there a book that's been particularly impactful for you in your career? It can be about food. It can be about writing. Oh, God. Yeah. I mean, several. I mean, Chef's Drugs and Rock and Roll was 100% my desire to do for chefs what Peter Biskin did for the American film directors of that same time period in a book called Easy Riders, Raging Bulls, which is a book about how old Hollywood became new Hollywood. And it's kind of the origin story of like Spielberg and Scorsese and Coppola and De Palma. And it's roughly the, it's almost the exact same time period as my book. It ends a little sooner. I mean, there were other books in that lane, but my North Star was that book. And actually it was a funny moment because I went to interview Ruth Reichel. She lives up ta- upstate, and I went up there, and I know that Peter Biskin lives up there, and I know that they knew each other somehow. Mm-hmm. I don't know why. And we interviewed at Zach Palaccio's restaurant called Back Bar, and we it was drizzling outside. We came out onto the street, and Ruth goes, Oh, Peter! <laughs> and it was Peter Biskin. And it is the selfie I most regret not taking in my life. Didn't even occur to me, but I considered that like, and I'm not someone who says this kind of thing. I took it as a sign. Wow. I was like, that is amazing. I just interviewed like the queen bee of, you know, that era of food journalism. And here's this guy whose book, I I reread that book like once a year. I, I used to be in the film business. I love that book. He's a little more bold than I am he I I had I could have put stories as salacious as the ones he puts in his book I I I, I'm not that guy Mm -hmm. you know like there's what's in publishing is called the legal read so like you turn in your book and you know you have an editor and a copy editor but then there's a legal read especially with anything historical or that Mm -hmm. like and and so like, for example, there are very well-known chefs who like three or four people told me on the record like cocaine stories about them, but they wouldn't talk to me about it. Got it. And 
I can't do it. I now respect the. Oh, are okay. we out of juice? Yeah, we're okay. We're, we we got this one. Oh, we're good. So the like with that, the number of people I had on the record saying that stuff, the lawyers would have cleared it. I know I didn't talk to them about it, but I've been through enough legal reads. I'm not. I can't. These people have grandkids. Like I'm not. And it's also like who. As I like to say, I'm not covering like nuclear weapon proliferation. I'm writing about cooks. I get it. You know, and it's a world I love. And I very strategically picked a very wholesome restaurant to put at the center of my next book. You know, it's a restaurant called Wherewithal, which is run by Beverly Kim and her husband and and co-chef and co-owner Johnny Clark. They have another restaurant that's been around much longer that's more well-known called Parachute in Chicago. Yep. And Beverly and Johnny and the team at Wherewithal are this are at the center of my next book. And, you know, I didn't there was nothing there that I had to feel like, oh, am I being a wishy-washy journalist by leaving this out? Because they run a clean ship, you know. So the drama comes from elsewhere in that book. But yeah. Last question for you. Sure. You somehow get a call right after this interview that you've won an all expenses paid trip to eat at your dream restaurant. <laughs> and when you get there, there's someone you've always wanted to speak with waiting to have dinner with you. Who is that restaurant and who is that? What is that restaurant and who is that person? And this is in the realm of the possible. I, so these I, are restaurants that are currently exist and people who are currently alive. I like to add if, if it would make it a spicy answer, it can be living or dead on the restaurant and person side too. Because it's just interesting for me to hear. I mean, the two restaurants I wrote about in Chef's Drugs and Rock and Roll that I always, that I, I never got to experience. And I was alive, but I just, I was a dope from Florida who didn't know food. I mean, I didn't know anything. I came to New York for college. So the first thing that comes to mind is the Quilted Giraffe, which was the, you know, one of the, it was one of the, the one of the very first American run kitchens to earn four stars from the New York Times. It was the height of opulence in New York City. It was run by a couple, Barry Wine and his now ex-wife, Susan. A lot of amazing talent. David Kinch started there. I mean, among many other people. And I've always wanted to eat there. Me too. (laughs) And I probably, I was going to say Warren Beatty because I keep hearing stories from that era about Warren. I think Warren Beatty is like this closet foodie that nobody realized, like, Warren Beatty shows up in a lot of my interviews. Like people tell me stories. Like he went to In at Little Washington years ago and was so taken with it, he ended up staying for three days. You know, like he used to be a regular at Da Silvan. Like his name comes up all the time. But you know what? Back in that time, you know who I would have liked to eat there with? Mayor Ed Koch. Interesting. I would have liked to have had a meal with Ed Koch at the Quilted Giraffe. What would you ask him? Oh, my God. What made him get into politics? How a guy like him won an election for mayor of New York? What it was like, you know, running against a young Mario Cuomo at one point? You know, if the conversation went there, his personal life, which was always much kind of wondered about and, you know, his personal romantic life and and all that stuff. I used to see him. I used to live at 88 Bleecker Street, which is between Broadway and Mercer. Yep. And this was in the early days of the Angelica movie theater, which is still there. And I used to see Ed Koch all the time because as a you know writer, I could go to Matt's and he would be there sometimes, like, you know, in the popcorn line. That's amazing. Uh, that's probably not the ultimate answer. That's the first yeah, thing yeah. that comes to mind. Well, and then if I can cheat, the other place I always wished I could have gone was Stars. Uh-huh. And Jeremiah Towers. Jeremiah Towers Landmark mm-hmm. San Francisco mm-hmm. restaurant, also a place that an unbelievable number of 
big names came out of. But to go to Stars in its heyday, yeah, I probably would have loved to do that. I don't know who I would have eaten there with. Well, I mean, if we wanted to spice things up, I could have tried to eat there with Alice Waters. That would have been awesome. <laughs> who did eat there a few times. Okay. You would not think that that was true, but she did. I remember when she told me that when I interviewed her, I was surprised because their personal and professional breakup was so operatic and 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 kind of poisonous at least where jeremiah was concerned but i don't know maybe again maybe the mayor maybe maybe willie brown the mayor Mm -hmm. at one point of you know the very 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 flamboyant mayor of of san francisco entertaining guy or maybe yeah it would be some combination like you know francis ford coppola was a a regular at chez panisse in the early days you know like going to chez panisse with him back then but it all involves some degree of time travel. Yeah. I feel like most restaurants I'd want to go to now, I'm very lucky I've, you know, I've gone, you know, or, or I'm thinking about it. I mean, I've never been to Osteria Fra- Francescano, you know, Massimo's restaurant. I could. It, you know, it feels available. I never ate at El Bulli. That's probably my biggest regret. That's my biggest one. When yeah. people ask me about if you could go back in time and do a restaurant. You missed it also. Quilted Giraffe and El Bulli. The closest I came was when Grant and Dave Barron did next. I went. I went too. I flew just to go there. Me too. I had to. Yeah. It was a, it was a friend who had a, had a four top booked and he was like, hey, can you come to Chicago for 36 hours to eat at this That's restaurant? what we did. I did that. That's so funny. Yeah. I don't even think it was 36. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Shorter than that. You that was to. yeah. I mean, it's it such was a, incredible. Yeah, such a such a institution, man. Yeah, yeah. but uh, yeah, it would be something like that, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, or eating under you know crazy Marco, going to Harvey's back in the day in London, or something like just like uh, over the top, uh, you know, just opulence and and you know the stories about the weight. To be honest, the wastefulness out of uh, those kitchens, but the food I'm sure was incredible. So. Andrew, I could keep your 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 mouth on the mic for another two hours. Honestly, it, well, this has been awesome. I hope I didn't ram. I feel like I've been very self indulgent, <laughs> no, but no, not it's at nice. All. Uh, good questions. <laughs> Thanks for having me. It's nice to be the guest and just show up. So yeah, thank you. Where, I enjoyed it. Where can people find the book? The next book? Yes. Well, any of my. I mean, yeah, my. Yeah. I'm very lucky. My books have been from major publishers, so. You know, well, at this point, Chef's Drugs and Rock and Roll, you probably have to go to like an online seller. Maybe you'd find one copy in your local independent bookstore. But when my next book, which is called The Dish, comes out next June, it's coming out from Mariner, which is a an imprint of HarperCollins. So it'll be readily available in, in whatever bookstores are still around and online sites. Yeah. And I'll be traveling a little bit. I'll for sure be doing events in Chicago and New York. So keep an eye out for that. And and maybe, you know, I'll get to meet you and sign your book. Totally. Well, thank you again for coming on the show. And I'm excited to continue to, to get some great restaurant recommendations from you in your city. Andrew's so fun to talk to because he's just a industry gusher. Like he loves the restaurant scene, the chef scene, the creativity scene. He even talks about sports and I kind of teased it at the end there. I really wanted to talk with him more about tennis related things because he's not only played it himself, but he's such a diehard fan and he's written about it too. And so he understands the sport like a lot of people don't. And as I kind of shared at the top of this interview, there were lists of questions that I didn't get a chance to 
to even touch. And so really hoping to get a part two with Andrew, especially as his book starts to come out. The thing that I wanted to add here at the end before we roll the outro is just to keep an eye on Andrew on Instagram. And you can also go ahead and follow the Repertoire newsletter if you aren't subscribed already, because that's where I'll probably be announcing when Andrew's book goes live, because I really want to give you folks a heads up. He talked with me off mic on the details that are going to be included inside of the book. And it just sounds like a project that I haven't seen people discuss in this way before. And so being able to bring that to you folks, especially if you geek out about food writing and chef stories and talking about purveyors and creativity, I think this will kind of tick a lot of boxes for you folks. And so being able to get a heads up when that first drops, especially because I I would love to have him on the show. I'd love to go on his show in the future. And so just keep an eye on all of that. It was really, really awesome to be able to finally get a chance to talk with Andrew. I hope you got some insight too. If you have any questions, please don't hesitate to reach out on Instagram, on Twitter. I, I, I even share this at the bottom of most of the newsletters. If you respond to those emails. I see every single response that comes back from those. And so always eager to have a conversation with you folks. Share this episode with a friend if it would be valuable. Leave a review on both Apple Podcasts as well as Spotify. And that's it for me. Please roll the outro. Well, well, here we are together again at the end of another episode of the Repertoire Podcast. If this is your first time listening, this is a show for hospitality creators who want to think better, increase their performance, and believe that it's possible to take lessons from what others have already learned. I am your host, Justin Kana, and if you're new here, I'd like to personally welcome you to the show. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Friendly heads up to check out the show notes inside of the description of this podcast if you want to check out previous guests, links to specifics that got brought up in this episode, as well as other helpful content that we create and share here online because everything we do is focused on helping you along your journey. If you don't have a ton of time, the best place to start is with some value sent straight to your inbox every single week. It's called the Repertoire Newsletter, where we share knowledge on sharpening your skills, asymmetric upside, and exploring the industry beyond the status quo. If you subscribe, we'll keep you up to date on trends that are shaping the hospitality creator ecosystem. We'll share discounts on gear that we find, as well as content that we've been producing ourselves and helpful articles that we've already read and decided are worth your time. Last up, if you want to connect with other other industry professionals in the Repertoire Pro community, you want to check out courses like Total Station Domination or download free tools that we've created, you can learn more at joinrepertoire.com. That's J-O-I-N-R-E-P-E-R-T-O-I-R-E.com. The only ask from me is that if you enjoyed this episode, I'd really appreciate a review of this show on Apple Podcasts as well as Spotify to help the podcast universe know that people like us like shows like this. Regardless, I'll see you in the next episode. My name is Justin Kana, and I hope you have a good one.